Hello, John, are you there? Oh, <clears throat> hi, Brian. Yeah, hi. Uh, just finished uh, putting down some logs here on this fire. Uh, I heard I heard the strangest noises outside my tent. I'm so glad it was just you. Yeah, I was just rustling around trying to find uh, some dry Kindle. Yeah, that's. I uh, got to keep the fire going. Keeps the the baddies at bay. Yeah, most things that are threatening are are scared by the light. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, weird sounds and threatening things, I, I had a movie that I was hoping to talk over with you. You certainly watch a lot of movies. Yeah, you know, I I love I love movies, and mm-hmm. uh, I try to occupy as much of my life with them as I can, so we can talk about them. Big fan of the cinema. A huge, huge fan. Mm-hmm. Capital F, mm-hmm. lowercase a, but then the capital N as well. Yeah, it's like fat. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, as always, I'll tease you with a few reviews and see if you can guess it. And uh, we're we're going from short to long. Okay. Yeah. So it's a little tease and then kind of a longer, more prolonged tease. Mm-hmm. This movie, it's an interesting update to a familiar horror film. And it manages to add more of the Lovecraftian influence back into the world. You know, I guess it is familiar. I wouldn't necessarily think of it as familiar, but uh, I guess it depends on who you speak of, or two, really. Yeah. Uh, Here's the second review. This movie is the Skinamax answer to to Gordon, the director of of the original, to Gordon's cult favorite. This remake removes any mystery and replaces it with unsavory sleaze. It is an unforgivably dull, moodless, and misfire remake. Mm. I didn't think uh, Skinamax was still a term people knew yeah. or understood. <laughs> our, our, our younger listeners won't remember what, <laughs> won't know what Skinamax meant. But uh, yeah, I guess uh, if you're old enough to have seen the original of this movie, you you'll might have watched some Skinamax as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, final, the final review, also negative. True to horror movie tropes. There's a group of teenagers that has every stereotype conceivable within the squad. There's an overly geeky guy, a blonde harlot, a tough guy, and a token black guy. It isn't very contemporary of the more progressive horror films we've seen over the last decade. Played by second-rate overacting newcomers, the characters are extremely uninspired and extremely unlikable. You really don't care for them, their backstory, their character arc, or their fate. These aren't very uh, flattering reviews. No. So we've got a remake with uh, a bigger Lovecraftian influence. We've got Skinamax and uh, teenage tropes, horror movie teenage group tropes. Well, I I guess I'm going to have to guess. Castle Freak 2020? Yeah. The 25-year silver. Is that the silver anniversary? It's been brewing for 25 years. Yeah. Yeah, I read a little bit online and apparently... The director of the of the remake tweeted that uh, they were going to make this movie, and their big promise was that it was going to be more Lovecraftian. It was going to have more of the of I don't know the original story, but and and the the context in which I read this about this tweet was that um, only the last five minutes or so of of the twenty twenty remake just kind of loaded on the Lovecraftian influence, and, and otherwise it was kind of absent. What I read was that the writer had finished the script, uh, chained it to a wall, and whipped it over and over again for 25 (laughs) years. Yeah, Uh, That'll do some things to your script. I feel like we should start at the end with this movie. What do you you think? Start at the end or start at the beginning? 
I think that's a novel approach. All right. The movie ends with a group of cultists, devotees of a god from the Lovecraftian universe, who is sort of a, a tentacled um, octopus sort of tentacled beast named Yog sothoth And they're trying to summon him back into onto Earth and allow him, this this deity, to resume his throne as Lord of Creation or whatever. And the mechanism by which they do this is to there's two uh, there's two sisters. One is Rebecca and the other one is the Castle Freak. The father of these two sisters is the high priest of this cult. They're called the old ones. He's the he's the main old one. He the father impregnates Rebecca, the daughter, is that true? On the altar? And Rebecca gives birth in the very last moments of the scene, seems to give birth either to Yogg-Sogoth himself or some spawn of Yogg-Sothoth. Uh, but a, a slivering from between her legs comes uh, one of these tentacled black slithering creatures. And that's how the movie ends. So the bad guys win. Mr. Sototh, he evidently is a god who knows past, present, and future. So it appears he's a resource in a sense who you could tap into and extract great knowledge from and with that power. But all of these things aren't formulated or displayed or communicated in the movie. You, you kind of just get thrown into that last third or not even third quarter of the movie where all this mythology comes forth and it doesn't really explain what's going on. And at least from this viewer's standpoint, I think that after that scene, and I'm glad that we're leading with it, I'm, I kind of came to the conclusion or thought of what is this movie about? Like, is this movie about a, well, freak of a sister in a basement that's chasing around and killing people? Or is the whole hook of the story around this mythos that has background gears on how the world works and it only introduces that in the last quarter of the movie so you're almost kind of left feeling as if you were robbed of what could have been a fairly complex and interesting plot line yeah it feels a little top heavy so to speak there are scenes throughout hints, hints throughout the movie there's a book uh, called the necronomicon Mm -hmm. which is discovered fairly early in the film inside this inside a castle where the castle freak lives. But I feel like all the interpretations of the book that are shown to us are just kind of generic gore. You know, there's a, there's an image of, of death and uh, there's some dark Latin scribblings that were meant to, that are kind of covered in blood and stuff. And there's nothing, there's nothing that leads one to until later towards the very end of the film leads one to, uh, realize that there's this cult of uh, the, these cultists who want to summon this evil deity. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, uh, it felt uneven, unevenly developed. It's weird because it's the the whole seed of the movie, the whole crux of the plot, but you only find out about it in like the last five minutes. So let me give the rest of the movie away as far as structure goes, and it's fairly short summary. There is a guy named John. He's dating a lady named Rebecca. 
this kind of fits into the original Castle Freak plot line where they get in a car accident fueled by alcohol. The girlfriend loses her vision. And then the boyfriend then hears that uh, the girlfriend inherited a castle. They go to Romania to look at the castle. Albania. What's that? Albania. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, there's the mysterious freak that's in the walls that only the uh, blind person can kind of sense. And there's a change in plot related to the individuals who are in the mansion and the interplay between the two of them. But I don't know. I felt that almost isn't worth explaining because it is definitely there as part of the plot line. But because it's so heavy and anchored in in the back end, it almost makes the front end forgettable because you're intrigued as to what's going on here at the end. And you're like, what what did I just spend three fourths of the movie watching? And so that I don't know if that's a good summary of the plot. But no, and yeah, um, and there's a smaller that sort of happens also. John and Rebecca go to the castle alone. I would say for like at least a third of the movie, they're there by themselves, and then their teenage friends, their posse of drug, drug-addled, you know, stereotypical horror movie teenage friends, come and ostensibly to help them inventory and dispose of the contents of the castle. But the addition of those six or whatever additional characters felt like another, you know, real fundamental uh, fold in the movie. Like you were, okay, it's, it's these two, it's their relationship. It's, it's him not believing all the things she thinks are going on behind the walls. And then all of a sudden it's a movie about drunken drug addled partying and getting murdered. And then, and then that's a big change. And then, and then the final big change is, oh yeah, it's also about trying to summon a demon Lord on t- into earth. Which was the plot or the intention of the fake realtor. His whole purpose was to try and get the two sisters together. And I guess through that reunification, they can have this seance or this experience of bringing back different deities to do what I'm not sure. Yeah, I didn't really understand the mechanics of all that. Like the Duchess, the mother sent Rebecca away from the castle to America. Rebecca thinks that she was adopted or something. But in the final scene, when the demon is summoned, it's not really made clear why Rebecca and the castle freak both have to be there. And both what what are they both contributing to this uh, reunion? Um, why, why couldn't the old ones just have wandered over to the castle any given Tuesday and summoned what's-his-face? A lot not made uh, clear and um, weirdly underdeveloped, and then bang, it's all there. And um, yeah, not a smooth rolling out of the plot. In review of the movie, I put a little more time into the Lovecraftian history, and I looked a little bit at it when we first saw Castle Freak, the original, but he created a lot of, I don't know, rich fictional lore around a universe that feels largely unexplored. And it's interesting that there's so many movies that refer to a Lovecraftian tale. And it it seems like from watching some of those movies, and I'm sure we'll watch some more in the future, it feels that there's mutants 
and things are spiritual and there's some uh, dark uh, spirits that kind of inhabit the world. But that's kind of all I got from most of the movies I've seen. It And it's I think it does a disservice to the amount of content that H.P. Lovecraft created. And I wonder if there's a better movie out there that kind of goes into his rich lore. I don't know anything about his writings, but just from... I, I was clicking around because that university that the professor I don't know if you noticed his t-shirt I forget what it was called mm-hmm. the university I, I googled that just out of curiosity and <laughs> it's it's apparently it's part of the Lovecraftian universe as well so there's all these little easter eggs about that but yeah I've never read any of his books I don't I don't know anything about what he wrote or the extent of his uh, fictional mythology but um, yeah the Necronomicon I feel like is a the idea of that book appears in other films, which I think are not connected to the Lovecraftian universe. True or false? True. Uh, I have a list. I, oh, wow. Yeah. And so I, my first experience... You brought it with you camping. You brought your list of Necronomicon referencing movies with you on this camping trip. Yeah. Well, I carried around with me at all times. And so I'm glad that you, you watched this movie. So my first experience with the Necronomicon was through the Evil Dead series. And I thought that at the time, which was a while ago, that that was the source of that concept but it is a Lovecraftian creation. Was there anything Lovecraftian about um, those Bruce Campbell movies? Um, I was trying to remember kind of how they introduced the movie and described the history of the Necronomicon to see if it was in sync with the history that Lovecraft created. But I I couldn't remember off the top of my head, and I probably should have looked into that. But it was the, the book was in the Evil Dead series. It was... In Jason Goes to Hell, which was the ninth Friday the Thirteenth movie, it was it was suggested that uh, Jason Voorhees was resurrected through the Necronomicon to appear in that movie, and it was in Pumpkinhead Two. Mm. And then there's this movie called Necronomicon, which unfortunately isn't about. Well, I haven't seen it, but it's a series of short horror stories. So. So uh, it sounds like Necronomicon is both a proper noun from the Lovecraftian universe and also a generic term for a horror movie book that, you know, explains why all the bad things are happening in the movie. It's the Kleenex of (laughs) resurrection books. (laughs) What does that mean? Like the term Kleenex became so generic that... (laughs) People just used it in reference to a tissue. Or you should say, yeah, you should say tissue, but nobody does. Well, regardless, the, the, the professor character is, is the nerdy teenage character, and he's the only one who believes Rebecca about all the sounds she's hearing behind the castle walls, and um, the two of them kind of branch off. And, and meanwhile, uh, John is seduced by Shelley, the stereotypical harlot, to quote the review. And um, there's a scene where John and Shelley are having inebriated sex. And Mm -hmm. uh, then the castle freak comes in and um, John's blindfolded, so he he doesn't see all this transpire. But uh, the castle freak murders Shelley in the middle of their lovemaking and then assumes Shelley's position in the sexual act 
mm-hmm. and thus revealing to this surprised viewer at least that the castle freak i assume the castle freak was in the in the original 1995 version is, is a is a man but uh it's a girl it's a woman in a sense that was the highlight of the movie in terms of you know plot development i guess plot surprise it was a highlight it was a but highlight it, all right but sex later has this demonic summoning role I, I didn't see why the castle freak i guess the castle freak just was into john and wanted to wanted to have sex with him but that that sexual act as far as i know didn't have any connection to the summoning of uh summoning done by the old ones well that, that gets me to the naming convention of castle freak there could be a sexual freak subcategory or at least defining quality of the castle freak because there were times in which she was behind the wall looking through little holes to view people and, and the fake realtor did the same thing. Yeah. But there is this sexual compulsion that the castle freak displayed. And to be honest with you, I don't like using the term castle freak. I think it's a little pejorative. So mm. I'm thinking uh, castle irregularity, probably. You, you would you would call the sister of Rebecca not the castle freak you would call her the castle regularity irregularity the castle irregularity okay. unless you got a better name well, yeah I, I think uh i think your point was that to uh, use the original term that the castle freak was freaky <laughs> in all sorts of ways she she was there's a scene where she masturbates while looking at uh something i forget what through through a hole in the wall uh-huh and then obviously uh, a deformed uh half demonic uh so yeah in in the in the 95 version i understood that the freak was just a freak because of the whipping Uh and kind of the neglect and the malnourishment and so on but in this movie it's not just that it's also a genetic you know it's not fully human it's part part uh part yogsagoth i believe superhuman strength yeah um there are times at which she ripped people's arms or broken people's bones and, and such through people across the room that seemed a little well as you're saying if she's a half human half god then that makes sense and i guess that would then fit into the, the freak category as well so maybe castle irregularity isn't the best defining term right castle abnormality that that might work yeah it just feel castle freak you know it just feels does a disservice to um, to the sister. I mean, other than the whole sexual compulsion thing, which in itself isn't necessarily unnatural. Uh, you know, I just I just don't feel comfortable calling her a freak. Mm. Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't notice that in the movie. Yeah, and then uh, there, I, I assume you watched the credits and saw the little end scene. True or false? I did see that. Yeah. What What on earth did you make of that? Well, back into the H.P. Lovecraftian universe, Reanimator was based on a tale by H.P. Lovecraft, and Herbert West went to the same university as the professor. <laughs> I don't remember that piece of uh, from uh, from Reanimator, despite all the attention I gave to this movie. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if I'd call it an Easter egg or more of a a loose association to the universe. And that's what I'm saying is that like, there's more to this universe that I think the movies represent. And I don't think it does a, a service to the, the quantity of content that HP Lovecraft created. And 
this whole backstory with all the gods and creatures and such. I mean, there's a whole list of different gods and demons that were created by him that I would say at least there's 30 people. It was an, mm. it was, uh, an overwhelming amount of people. So in the last scene, we're meant to understand that the professor is back at college at his at his secret university, and he goes it's in. A, the university is called uh, the Miskatonic University. Okay, so he's he's back at MU, and he walks into Herbert West's office, and Herbert West is sitting at his desk, and he's some sort of professor at this university. Is that what we're meant to understand? I think he was uh, within the medical college within that university. So, so the professor enters the room to, I think, talk to a another professor who's at the university, and. Herbert West happens to be talking to the same professor at the same time, probably about his reanimation uh, experiments. <laughs> but the professor is holding the Necronomicon, true, and and uh, presumably the worldwide effects of the summoning of Yog Sothoth would have been alerted to these professors, and so um, <laughs> I. It, I if the professor is going into his professor's office to report on or reveal the existence of the Necronomicon or to report on the active role he, the professor, took in summoning Yog Sothoth, what, I mean, and then on, on Herbert West's desks, just casually sitting there is a vial of reagent, which, <laughs> if I remember the reanimator movies, is used to revive dead people, which has no connection, as far as I can tell, to castle freaks or castle irregularities. Or um, there, there's no summoning of, of dead bodies. There's summoning of demons from other planes of the universe. So mm -hmm. it's just... if uh, I want to uh, appreciate the glory of all this lore, but uh, there seems no connection between the reanimator movies and uh, what I saw in this film. I think it fits more into the Marvel movie universe where there's a nod to other storylines, but they aren't necessarily intersecting. That's my guess, but I hardly ever watch those Marvel movies. I don't really find them that entertaining. So it's sort of like, hey, this is a little thing at the end of the movie to say our little storylines and universes are intersecting or coming close to intersection. Isn't that, isn't that fun? It's like a little fan nugget. Mm. Yeah, I guess since it's after the credits, only the most devoted would linger in the theater to take that in. And that's um, why you you waited till the end, because you're so dedicated to the uh, well, Castle Freaks series. I was watching this movie on my laptop, and I just noticed that there was quite a large chunk of time left on the little scroll bar. So I was like, I was sort of hovering over the, the fast-forward bar trying to see what was after the credits, and then I saw the little scene. So that's the only reason I kept going. Otherwise, my fingers were hovered over open apple Q, ready to, uh, to end the experience. <laughs> Just to give you a little toehold in the whole Lovecraft work, is that there's a faculty list of those that are at, the, at MU. And you got <laughs> chief librarian, ancient historian, there's a zoology department. And so it's just like... <laughs> Do they have like a football and tennis team? Or? <laughs> this is so much content. Uh, that maybe a dedicated fan knows about, and we're just not within that that group. But either way, to get back to the idea of how this movie serves 
H.P. Lovecraft is I think it doesn't do it justice in that the last quarter, and that's almost 20 minutes, gets into this interesting sort of backstory. And the first 80 minutes was about a bunch of goofy people having difficulty interacting, just kind of loser drug users, like washed up party people and a asshole boyfriend. And Where, it, whereas the 1995 version had, I think you said when we were, when we reviewed that movie a couple of days ago on this hike, mm-hmm. uh, it had no connection to this larger Lovecraftian universe. It was a very simple story about, uh, yeah. So, it, I mean, they, according to this 2018 tweet, the the director of this movie really wanted to flesh out the love. So, how do we account for the utter failure to flesh out? There's certainly a heavy dose at the end, but it's not like a, if if I'm a Lovecraft devo- devotee, I've got to feel pretty let down by the way this movie was done. I would agree. Uh, I think that's maybe the main complaint or one of the complaints. I actually like the movie, so I don't. I'm not saying that I wasn't enter- entertained. But for the material, I felt that it could have done more. But I'm not sure what your thoughts are. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it. The characters were, the actors were terrible. And the characters were not even one-dimensional, sort of like one-third dimensional. They they suggested potential development, like, the Native American guy, I think he was Native American, and the and the African American guy, they sort of have this anti-government conspiratorial viewpoint that they share. So you're like, okay, maybe that's going to go somewhere. And then, uh, and then the the relationship uh, between Elizabeth, Rebecca, and John isn't um, doesn't really develop because John is just an insufferable asshole who just lies and does drugs. And the competition, Shelley, is just one-dimensional we never really learned what she sees in john and why she also isn't revolted by what a drug-addled asshole he is so i mean yeah there's just no tendrils on which one can hook one's sympathy for these characters there is um an interaction or maybe a dynamic between the boyfriend and rebecca where the boyfriend has a sense of responsibility to the girlfriend because he got in a car accident and blinded her, or the car accident blinded her. I don't want to put too much intention on the accident, but that's a weird or curious social responsibility that one might find themselves in, where they are obligated to sacrifice part of themselves to support or satisfy someone else. And kind of what that structure lies on is maybe a sense of guilt, which is fueled by a societal responsibility, but people go to great lengths to support other individuals. You could call it a virtue. And I'm not sure the mechanics of that. Is it empathy? Is it guilt? Is it uh, a sense of obligation? I think in, in, in reference to John and Rebecca, it feels like a sense of guilt because he's, it's not something that he truly feels like he wants to do. I mean, he ends up sleeping with a female friend. So if he truly was in love or, or felt that supporting Rebecca was a requirement to himself, 
in totality, he wouldn't have slept with the friend. But he still feels like he has to do that. And maybe it's because he wants to inherit the money from the castle. So, you know, maybe specific to John and Rebecca as a point or a general consideration. But that that can take lots of different forms. The idea of supporting someone else, maybe under obligation or maybe it doesn't feel like an obligation. Maybe it feels like uh, an opportunity to some. Yeah, there was no sense of how long ago the car accident had happened. But in the first movie, the 1995 version, it was the daughter. So there's a natural, obviously, obligation on the father's part to, to take care of her. But yeah, with uh, John doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would be moved by feelings of obligation. And uh, he also, like the original father figure in the first movie, struggles with a substance abuse problem. Although it doesn't, the movie doesn't really tell us that he's trying to give up drugs. He just reverts to his drug use to take the edge off, he says, after a certain point. But yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of affection between the two of them. And Rebecca's withholding her sexual activities from him, uh, just like the wife was in the first movie. Could be a withholding, could be just a lack of interest. Well, because like when, you, when someone says withholding, it sounds like it's intentional through manipulation, but it also could just be a, a lack of interest. Mm. And so John in the, in the remake, he feels a sense of requirement to not use drugs or to drink because the girlfriend is suggesting, well, this is what happens when you drink or use drugs, bad things happen. We can't go back to that experience. And so he's only avoiding those substances because the girlfriend says that he should. And he's only staying with the relationship maybe because he feels that society says that he should or some other requirement. But from his organic preference, I feel like neither of those actions are motivated by himself. Uh, what are we meant to make of Marku, the the realtor agent? He, I think he knows more about H.P. Lovecraft than the the writer. I mean, he he uh, is trying to orchestrate the two sisters coming together. So he would first have to know that there were two sisters and that one of them is chained up in the basement. Did he assist in the whipping? I can't remember. Didn't he kill the uh, the mother? Yeah, he killed the mother, which we learned through. Rebecca has these flashbacks where she seems to re-experience episodes from the mother's life. And she's kind of seized by not only visions, but also physical pains. And, and yeah, um, yeah, you're right. The uh, Marku, he says he grew up in the castle. He says that openly, too, I think, to, to, to John. Maybe not. I don't remember. But, yeah, he uh, he in one of the flashbacks, was the one who killed the Duchess. Mm -hmm. But again, is he like another son, or um, is he one of the cultists? It's not really clear. Because there's, there's that one scene where he kind of kneecaps uh, John and says something. I don't remember what he says, though. But I think it's about wanting being on board with summoning Yog sothoth <laughs> You've got that named out. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, yeah, so he, he he's somehow part of the society that, I guess, supports the idea of bringing back these gods or uh, entertaining them in some way. 
he's been, I guess he dedicated his life to it because he first has to know that the two sisters exist. He's helping uh, the mother at some point and then kills the mother, I guess, to free the sister, which would then start the process of them reaching out to Rebecca. So Rebecca comes back to the castle and then the reunification can occur. And so he's really invested in this. <laughs> you know, the timeline's always quirky in that why would he wait, I don't know how many years, 20, let's just assume she's 21, 21 years patiently when maybe the unification could happen when they're six. And so he's, you know, the sense of unnecessary time spent. I mean, and, and plus he looked like he was maybe in his 50s. So, yeah, I don't know. The, I'm kind of lost in the time, like both both on motivation and because uh, the, the town also is familiar because they... Uh, John goes to try and sell some of the furniture, mm. and the town's like, "We're not buying that stuff; it's cursed." So this event is in recent history, uh, like working history, because everyone knows it. It's not just some f- small cult section. I got the impression that most of the townsfolk were cultists, or yeah. at least the important, you know, figures in the town were all on board with this summoning. And the and the Duchess, the mother, is Christian and is depicted throughout the movie in flashbacks or as praying and presumably trying to get the Christian God to intervene and stop these old ones from summoning their Lord. And um, I don't understand what the self-flagellation has to do with anything. I think that's just a thing that it happens in horror movies when Christians are just depicted as in, into that kind of thing, but it, I don't know what it's meant to accomplish or why she kills herself or, or you know, why Marku murders her. It's not explained. There must be some, getting back to the idea of the lack of uh, justice given to H.P. Lovecraft, let's just assume that there's a, a time frame that that would motivate the fake landlord to instigate this process because there seems to be a a intersecting time or event or age that is specific to executing the the plan at a certain date and time. What if this movie does justice to the Lovecraftian universe and the Lovecraftian universe is just an unexplained, unbalanced piece of garbage? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that's true. I mean, that's in, in kind of our continued trail through the through the hills here i'm sure we'll come across more lovecraftian movies and maybe we'll have a better sense of that that's a really good question yeah well, something to keep in mind mm-hmm. yeah i um am happy to end this conversation i did not enjoy this movie um it, it looked fairly high budget for for mm-hmm. a horror movie you know the sets and but uh one review i read lamented the relative unscariness of the freak uh-huh. compared to the 95 version. Um, and I, I found myself agreeing with that reviewer. Uh, the, the freak is, is hideous looking, but there's not the same uh, slow kind of revelation of, of its actual de- the details of its look. It's more like you kind of know what the freak's up to and what it looks like. And uh, from, from pretty early on in the movie. So it's kind of, you're kind of not, uh, not scared by it, I would say. As much as the freak in the 95 version was scary. Yeah. Uh, 
what I liked about it was the the elements that were over the top, the sex scene with the freak and John, and the last quarter of the movie. One of the things that I appreciate about the horror genre is that a writer or a story can go in many different directions and it can <laughs> introduce lots of unusual and strange things and, well, get away with it in some sense, and they have the freedom to do such. And so the first movie was pretty straightforward, just a handful of characters, like very conceptually easy to consume. This kind of took off about halfway through the movie with the Necronomicon discovery and and then it just started just getting more absurd. And so that's what I found entertaining was the idea of, well, we're, where is this going to go next? It could go really anywhere. And it, and it kind of did. And so that's, that's what I found entertaining. I found the first half a little slow. And it was unfortunate because the first scene where they were at a party and it felt like they were really developing characters and motivations. That was mostly, as we were talking about earlier, unused in a sense, probably a better word to use, but it just didn't go anywhere with those individuals. And then the last half of the movie just kind of took off into absurdity. Yeah, I would agree with that. Summation. Yeah. Yeah, the the group of teenage misfits gives you hope that it'll at least be kind of a campy fun movie, but then that doesn't really pan out. And then you and then you think, oh it's uh I don't know. Oh it's it's about their relationship and that doesn't really pan out and then I don't know and then and then the freak is really a female so you think oh that's gonna that's gonna and then it kind of blows up into this Lovecraftian <laughs> universe homage which I know nothing about and uh, and then yeah that's uh, last two things the first as you were describing the first two characters at the party I thought they were very reminiscent of Frog Brothers from Lost Boys I thought that was the role they were gonna take which Frog are Brothers. these. Yeah, the Frog Brothers were these two individuals who uh, were experts in vampires. And so they kind of led the path of what to do when working or trying to deal with vampires. And I thought that those two characters were going to play that role throughout the film. I thought that would be a nice expert role they could play. But they introduced some sophisticated ideas and then disappeared. And maybe I'm hoping that the uh, Lovecraft universe is a little more coherent than... uh, is displayed in this movie. Well, we'll find out when we watch more. We will find out. Movies from the Lovecraftian universe. Yeah, so the fire is dying down, Brian. Oh, well, again, Jesus. Yeah. How many logs did you gather? I gathered one. Oh, that's not going to be enough. Well, it was just me. (laughs) (laughs) But you have two arms. Until our next movie. Correct.